Welcome back. This week on the podcast, I talk with Bruce Bryant. Bruce was wrongfully convicted of murder when he was just 23 years old, and he was originally sentenced to 37 years to life in prison. Bruce ended up serving 29 years behind bars because a corrupt prosecutor and a broken system sent Bruce to jail for a crime that he did not commit. Commit. In 2022, at the end of 2022, he was granted clemency by New York State, and he was finally released on April 24th of this year. Bruce is one of the more incredible people I've ever talked with. During his time in prison, he earned multiple degrees. He inspired thousands of people. He inspired me during this conversation. He established programs for the people incarcerated to better themselves, to learn skills and learn traits and social skills to, for them to um, contribute to society once they get back and out of prison. Bruce is doing incredible things with his work now that he is out. If you do want to help and donate to his mission, there's a link in the show notes. But I, I mean, I cannot tell you enough how meaningful this conversation is. Bruce is is very special in the way he talks and the way he inspires. He he reminded me of Denzel Washington in a way. Um, so I'm excited for all you to hear the conversation. I think it's one we all need to be better educated on. Before we get into the conversation with Bruce, if you haven't done so already, you got to check out Rebel Rabbit Seltzers. Their mission is for us to healthy to for us to socialize in a healthier way, and that's exactly what what and that's exactly what they are doing with their seltzers. They are infused with Delta Nine THC and cannabis. They are alcohol free, so all the harm that comes along with drinking alcohol, like the sleep effects, like the hangovers, like the headaches, like all the things you're doing to your brain that you don't even see right away, that does not come with Rebel Rabbit Seltzers. You can socialize, you can feel good being out with your friends, but you're going to wake up after a good night's sleep. You're going to be able to be motivated and be productive in the days following. If you use promo code LIFE20, you'll get 20% off your order. Their link is also in the show notes. They have retailers they are stacking up all over the country or they'll ship directly to you. They have a couple different uh, flavors and a couple different levels. So whatever level you're on, um, they have something for you. And like I said, it's a great alternative for alcohol and it's a much healthier way to socialize. If you're already on the health kick, you might as well be sleeping on an engineered sleep mattress. You're drinking Rebel Rabbit. You might as well be getting the best night's sleep, and that would be on an engineered sleep mattress. They are second to none. Their products are the best. I currently have three of their mattresses, and I had them before they were a part of the show, a partner of the show. Their website is engineeredsleep.com. If you use promo code LIVE15, you'll get 15% off your order. So all those links are in the show notes. Be sure to check out Bruce's um, link to donate to his cause. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Bruce Bryan. Bruce, man, good evening to you. How how was your 4th of July week? Well, my first 4th of July week out of prison in almost 30 years, I spent a lot of time at home with my mother, um, and just basking in her presence. I, I listened from the inside to all the fireworks and got to look outside and see 
you know, all the all the lights and the you know and the glitter going up in the air. It was a joy to just be home and be in the presence of my mother. Yes, sir, man. That's great to be. With um you got out April of this year. How did that yes. feel? Surreal. And it continues to get better. Um it continues to get better daily. I can't tell you how excited I am, you know, how much I keep the smile on my face. It's almost like a permanent smile because uh, I no longer have to ask to take a shower. Uh, I no longer have to ask to, you know, I continue to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and I can be around love, which is the most important thing. You know, That's right. Love of my family. Yes. Do you, uh, what do you recall most about that day? Wow, man. It was the way the gates opened, and, and, and it was almost like Moses part in the Red Sea. The way the gates opened and the love that was on, on the other side of that gate, coming from hell and walking into heaven, yep. right? Coming from the bottom and stepping out into the top, right? Because... When you're surrounded by love, there's nothing, there's no greater feeling. Mm -hmm. When you're surrounded by people that believe in you and that genuinely care about you, um, it's nothing like it. And missing out on it for so long and being in such an abnormal environment for so many years, you know, you're talking almost 30 years of living in an abnormal environment that's volatile, hostile, um, mm -hmm. violence at an all-time high. And, you know, you never know what each moment can bring very true you know you never know what can happen in in a split second you know it could an alarm can go off and it's a riot and or the or the squad can come in you know a special search team and and assault and abuse hundreds of guys so you just never know what's going to happen take um you know take me back to bruce at age 23 what's going through you know where you live in what's what's going on in your life at age 23 Young guy, um, trying to find his way in life. Uh, one of my regrets is not pursuing higher education when I was uh, when I was home. While I had signed up for school, I never pursued it in the way that I should have. But I was a young guy just trying to find my way. And I think when you come up in the environment that I came up in during the height of the crack era and the drug era in Jamaica Queens. Mm -hmm. um, you kind of fall. You kind of fall victim to the allure of the streets, and you begin to be around uh, the wrong people, the wrong crowd, um, and become enticed by the wrong things. Sure, I think not, we all we all have that at some point. We all have those, um, you know. And I think that all of these things happening so fast and all at once at a particular time, you become attracted to it, right? So. On a small level, you try to hustle to make a dollar here, a dollar there, to make ends meet and to help your family. Um, but never in a million years would you think that at 23 years old, you would be kidnapped mm -hmm. from the streets of Jamaican Queens um, and be held for 29 years in a cell behind bars. What, what were you doing? For your um, life. Weren't you doing something with your niece? the day you were arrested? Absolutely. Um, nieces, a, a friend of mine's her niece's costumes at uh, 
a, it was a Halloween costume she needed to change. And we were going to change that. And, um, and she also had a desire for some chocolate cake. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself turned into 29 years of incarceration. And I know we're not going to get into too much detail because as I think they should, yeah. they're revisiting the case and, um, you know, we got to make sure we don't talk about it too much. But what's, what does John Scarpa mean to you? What's it, what's his deal? Uh, 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 a plague, man. Uh, somebody who used his power to disrupt lives and to pursue uh, a career right? I, I, and to just build his career off of the lives of people who he cared nothing about, right? Who he thought were the uh, the untouchables, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Those who were the marginalized, he felt he can um, continue to, you know, to build his career off of those lives, man. And it's, and it's just what he did until he found himself being... Um, being recorded by the feds and being arrested and going to prison himself. Um, and he was the prosecutor Johnson. on your case? Absolutely. And he, since then, was he, when When were the rumblings in your mind of he's a corrupt, obviously you knew he was corrupt sending you to jail, but have you heard, did you hear any rumblings of that beforehand of him being a corrupt prosecutor? Yes. Yes. You hear that and you read um you read a lot of case law when you incarcerated. Uh working in the law library, reading a lot of case law, and you run across, you know, guys from the neighborhood who have experienced uh some of the same things you have, who have encountered um John Scarper throughout the course of their uh incarceration, right? And you begin to do research. And the more you dig into it, the more you see that this was not a one-off. This is a this is who this guy is, right? It's um, it's a part of his makeup. I saw. Right? Um, so he ended up getting caught bribery, right? Yeah. So he was. Yeah, so he, he served thirty months in the federal prison, and he ser- and he sent you to jail for twenty nine years. Yes. With um when it hits that you're incarcerated wrongfully, you're going to jail, when did it click with you like I gotta do everything in my power to get out? Like what you know, instead of giving up, you turn it around to you had hope, man. I feel like that's such a crazy and amazing mindset you had going in. I think it's important for me to Realized that, you know, my pain didn't, I could have either wallowed in my pain or I could have transformed my pain into purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And to try to find some purpose in the midst of my pain. And I think when you, when you keep that level of optimism alive, um, it allows you to, to thrive even in the midst of hell, right? And then on top of that, when you have faith, and you have love and you have supportive people behind you. Um, it cause it gives you, it, be, it becomes the wind beneath your wings mm-hmm. and it causes you to keep on moving. Right. Because, you know, now that I, I was fortunate to have the support of my family, a good girl at the time. Um, and just my loved ones, my mother, and my father, who were just unconditional support. 
Um, I think that makes the difference, you know, and it, and it even makes the difference now, right? Mm-hmm. Even living day to day life, having the love and the support of people that believe in you and who genuinely care for you. Um, relationships are transformational, mm-hmm. right? Um, when you're inside and you begin pursuing higher education and you see the relationships you build with professors, um, you know, professors that come in and try to pour into you and become your mentor, even outside of class, they be, you know, they take, they take the time out to, you know, to invest in you and to talk to you about what it means to create a better life for yourself. Um, I think that's important. You know, I, I had a professor by the name of John Ocon from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And he was my professor from Dutchess Community College. He was a professor of career and life planning. And this was about 1997. And this guy, me and this guy are still in touch till today. So he became an important part of my life in terms of believing in me and uh, helping me understand what it means, you know, to build a career and to plan for my life, despite being in um, dire circumstances, being in, in conditions where most people feel like you have to do what you, you got to do. You know, he was always encouraging me to do the right thing, to do good and do right, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so him pouring into me helped me a lot, as well as others, as well as other guys in the cons- in the prison that were like older and had been around for 20, 30 years that believed in me. Uh, the Resurrection Study Group and the National Trust, groups like that, they're no longer around. But when you have these old-timers who genuinely care and recognize the humanity in their fellow men behind prison bars, you know, it makes a difference. It makes a huge difference in your life, you know? The support system is, I mean, so key, I think, for so many people. And it doesn't have to be direct family. You know, it can be anybody. Like Anybody. I I believe these stories are incredibly powerful for people to hear. You know, uh, whatever they're going through in life, you know, stories can, like, pick you back up and realize you can accomplish incredible stuff. Bruce, I read that autobiographies were a big part early on for you. Can you talk me through how those stories helped you? Yeah, by gaining strength through some of the work, some of the teachings that you grasp. Because for me, it wasn't just about reading a book. It was almost like a lesson that I was looking for in the books like, you know, Barry White, Quincy Jones, uh, Marvin Gaye, uh, Nelson Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom. Uh, Steve Bantubico, who was one of my favorite, I write what I like, and you know, and Victor Frankl and Left to Tell, which for me, by Immaculate Illibagiza, was the most compelling story that I've ever read in my entire life. Um, how she was able to find the wherewithal to withstand living in a bathroom for 91 days with seven other women while a family was being annihilated outside by a, 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 a genocide that happened in Rwanda. And to see a, a, a seven or eight year old girl overcome that through faith and through prayer and through belief in herself, it was, it was inspirational for me. I knew that I had to make it through, mm-hmm. right? I, I couldn't let myself down and I couldn't let, and I couldn't let the people who loved me and believed in me down. 
So I try to grasp those jewels from autobiographies and learn from the lives of everything. But we can kind of, you know, live vicariously through some of those autobiographical uh, stories that we read about and learn from them, right? Because it's important that wisdom is about learning from others so we don't make those same errors or those same mistakes in our lives. Man, that's so true. With uh, When did you meet Eddie Ellis? Oh, wow, man. I met Eddie Ellis in 1996. I met Eddie Ellis in 1996. Yeah. Wow. 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 You, uh, 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 uh. you did your own work, man. You did your <laughs> Eddie Ellis, oh man, Eddie Ellis is the founder of the Resurrection Study Group, um, which was the first group of incarcerated men that actually uh, one day saw me going to the law library and said, brother, uh, I see you going to the library fighting for your life. I like your style, man. You got, you, you're a smart young man. We want to put you on some call out so you can come to class. And I'm like, come to class. Yeah, we're putting you on call out. It was almost like it wasn't a request. It was a demand. <laughs> and when I started going to these classes, Eddie Ellis would come in and sit with us and tell us what the Resurrection Study Group was all about and what it meant to to rise to the occasion to be better than we were yesterday, right? Um, and help us understand that where we are didn't have to define who we were mm-hmm. or what we could become, you see? So the, so the walls around you were simply that, walls around you. Um, walls around you that kept you physically captive, but it didn't prevent your mind from expanding unless you allowed it to. And Eddie poured into us, man. Eddie was like, man, Eddie was like, the, like, like a godsend to us. He was a, not just a mentor to me, but to countless other men, Eddie was a mentor to. Um, and this guy was brilliant, right? He's the first guy that said, we're not going to be calling ourselves inmates and convicts. You know, we call, we're people, right? There's a stigma attached to that. And we're going to be calling ourselves people. And lo and behold, 30 years later, the system has changed to where they no longer call you inmates in New York State. They call you incarcerated people. But Eddie Ellis had the foresight, right, to, to develop what we call the non-traditional approach to social and criminal justice. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and what the catalyst for him developing that is he was walking the prison yard in Attica one day in Greenhaven, and what he found, what he realized was everybody seemed to know everybody. In some situations, it was almost like a neighborhood meetup in some of the New York State prisons. You would see guys from the neighborhood that you grew up with 20, 30 years and you and it, it would be puzzling. You'd be saying, well, I didn't know you were where you were all these years. And next thing you know, sometimes father and son bump bump into each other behind prison walls. And what we came to realize was there were seven basic neighborhoods that, that made up the vast majority of the New York State prison system. And these seven basic neighborhoods were plagued with poor school districts, right? Crime generative factors, right? That we believe develop crime generative attitudes and behaviors because we never believe that a person is born a criminal there's no such thing as a criminal gene right there are there are uh, several factors that cause a person to go astray and find themselves in these situations mm-hmm. and that, you know and, and in marginalized communities um they're often you know tough on crime 
they're not tough on the social conditions that produce crime. And when we when he realized that people came from these neighborhoods that were impoverished, that were marginalized, that were plagued with poor school districts, inferior education, he began to develop the non-traditional approach to social and criminal justice. Um, one thing I would say about that I learned from Eddie is we are solution based, right? We're always we're wired to um, to solve problems, and that's what it was about. It wasn't just uh, you know we didn't just take the problem and say what we got to do about it. You know what are we doing or just wallowing self pity. We always realized that there has to be a solution to this. Anything that was created can be solved in some way. Um, so these social conditions, he began to address them inside. We began meeting with legislators and people from different walks of life who really, really wanted to learn from us and, and you know, and, and really were taking our ideas and saying, wow, these guys are on to something. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a testament to to Eddie and another brother by the name of Luke Mon, Larry White, who recently passed away at 83. It was a testament to them and the tremendous work that they did um, behind prison walls. I think we, well, I like to call them as Eddie and Luke Mon as the uh, the founders of the New York State prison movement mm-hmm. because these guys were way ahead of their game, man. That's incredible. You know, and, and a part of me, you know, part of my survival was based on what I learned from Eddie and Luke Mon. In all honesty. What's it like if... You're with Eddie, and you're with, I think his name's Lou. Is that what you said? Luke Bond, Larry White. Yeah, so if you're with these guys, and what if you end up like changing facilities or moving prisons? You know, how do y'all stay connected, or how do you stay motivated? Or, you know, are the resources the same in, in different facilities? Like, it's tough. The resources aren't the same, but we would go to different prisons, man, and we would do our best to implement those same classes because sure. we each we each had the core group members had uh, the curriculums. So one of the things we would do is we would take those curriculums and we would develop them in other institutions. And oftentimes, to be quite honest with you, we would get shut down. We would get shut down in prisons like Clinton and Comstock. They would say, y'all not bringing that here. And, you know, it got to the point where sometimes we would meet each other in the yard. And just have little sessions and try to bring young brothers around and uh, bring them into the school building and make it seem like we're teaching them something else, but we're teaching them the values of the resurrection study. Very cool. Sometimes sometimes we did it in the law library, right? It almost became in those in those in those disciplinary institutions, it became like a secret society of guys really trying to educate and teach younger brothers because the gang culture was coming up back then so hard that we was like, we got to go out and teach. It can't just be us. We got to keep moving wherever we are. We got to bring the resurrection study group with us. And those principles that, that Eddie and uh, Larry White poured into us. Do, is there, um, is there guys that are 23, 24 now speaking about Bruce Bryan? Like you speak about Eddie, like they're in jail right now, you know, they're still incarcerated. Like my, Mentor Bruce Bryan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, it's it's a humbling experience for me for me to even have that, right? And you know, to say yes, it's 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 a big yes, a big yes, right? Um, 
so many. Some of them I email right now. Um, in fact, a couple of them have actually been released and are doing relatively well. I just spoke to a young brother the other day named Torian Haywood. And um, he was 16 when he came to prison. And he did 10 years. And he pulled me to side one day and he said, my father was from Queens. You might know him. He died when I was one. And this guy, ever since I told him that I might know his father, he clung to me. And to this day, you know, we stay in touch. We stay in touch. He's doing well. And he's always telling people, I got to go by Bruce's job and see him, man. I want to talk to the students because they need to know what he did for me. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm grateful for the opportunity, man, to have been able to be an instrument of change or an agent of change and impact some young lives while I was in prison. I'm in touch with so many brothers, man. They email me through that JPay now. I uh, I always got to keep a hundred stamps on there. Uh, <laughs> I tell I tell my girls sometimes I got to keep stamps to make sure that I'm able to reach out to the brothers, man. Um, because I, I, you know, sometimes brothers, that's all they want is that look, that inspiration. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's so, it, the system is so different now that it's hard to find that. Yeah. So when they do find it, they want to hold on to it. You know. Mm -hmm. And it's important because we got so many talented young brothers and sisters behind prison bars. Yeah, so true. Uh, that that is unbelievable. Some of our young girls that are incarcerated, man, our young women incarcerated, they don't necessarily receive the support that they deserve, that they need. And, um, you know, I would implore anybody and everybody, man, if there's, you know, if there's ever an opportunity for you to do something for someone, particularly a woman incarcerated, um, they can use all the help that they can get. You know, if it's, if it's a letter, uh, you know, um, a care package, Whatever it is, just a card just to say, keep the faith. You are loved. You're thought about. You're cared about. Um, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. If you got a, if you got a family member uh, uh, that happens to be, in, you know, impacted by the system, pay those sisters a visit, man. Because oftentimes those visiting rooms where the women are incarcerated at, so I, I've met counselors, correctional, countless correction officers who have left the female prison and come to the male prison and say, man, those females. Females don't get no visits like you guys get visits over here. Dang. So those women really need it. In Bedford Hills, in Taconic, um, in New York State, those women need all the support that they can get. The um, What type of system did, or uh, resources did you put together at Sing Sing, your last facility? Well, there are a couple of things we did, man. Um, we were looking at addressing uh, dyslexia. We started Dyslexia Project. Where um, we had to change the name from Dyslexia to a Literacy Project because Albany didn't like the particular name. So while we, I was in part of Hudson Link, which is a college program, Hudson Link organization funds the, the the higher education for incarcerated people in Sing Sing and about five or six other prisons in New York State. And while, after earning my bachelor's, I began continually continuously looking into the educational system. And one of the things I learned was almost 50% of people incarcerated are living with dyslexia. Mm -hmm. And um, and no one is doing anything about it. It's like, it's like, it's like one big secret, right? So guys are trying to get their GEDs or high school equivalencies 
and it's difficult for them because they, they, they've, they've gone years without being diagnosed with a little bit of problem. Mm-hmm. And no one is trained in corrections to interfere and say, well, hold on, man. Um, we got to develop these tools or uh, bring, in, bring in the proper staff that knows how to address dyslexia. So they're left to um, spend years in trying to get their GED or the high school equivalency degree. Um, and they're unable to pursue higher education. They're overlooked. Then you have the, uh, the civic engagement uh, program. Now that as of September 2021, formerly incarcerated people are able to vote. So, you know, Dang. this year I'll be voting. I'll be involved in local politics and voting for the first time in my life. Um, and a lot of people don't know that. So and they don't understand the dynamics of voting. So, you know, one year, one year before a person is released, we're trying to have them go through a civic engagement program that we develop so that they can learn the dynamics of civics and getting involved in local politics. Dang. With, um, um... There's, there's also a youth assistance program cool. that, that I was a part of. It's known as YAP. Um, what YAP does is YAP brings in groups of marginalized kids for us to have real discussions with, real hardcore discussions with. And, um, and that was like, that, that was some of the, some of the best, the best Thursdays of my uh, incarceration or when those kids came in and we were able to talk to them, you know, myself along with other guys from a group that I was also a part of called Voices From Within. Voices From Within, man, what we've done with, we've developed a program called Choices, which is an acronym for choosing healthier options in confronting every situation. Myself, John Adrian Velasquez, um, Lawrence Bartley and countless other guys were a part of it. Uh, they were the founders. I came in later on and became a member. I was in the second group of uh, of members, the core group of uh, guys that were responsible for developing programs, mentoring incarcer- other incarcerated people, and just trying to get them out the rut and let them know that some they have some reason that has you know shared experiences with them. What I like to say is, we have eaten of the same loaf. Sure. And someone that genuinely cares, you know? Yeah, man. The uh, the shared experiences really are powerful for people to hear. With um, what's the nineteen ninety four crime bill? Nineteen ninety four crime bill. Uh, our president, President Joe Biden, he co-authored the nineteen ninety four crime bill, and uh, Bill Clinton signed it into law, um, which. What the 1994 crime bill did, it gave funding to certain states and jurisdictions to build more prisons. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is where you see the onslaught of the private prison sector being developed. Um, and you saw mass incarceration booming. I mean, right now in New York State, you got 31,500 people incarcerated. In 1994, when the crime bill was signed, Two, three years after that, it went up to something like 72, 73,000 people in New York State. Uh, California was something at 180,000. Uh, in every state in the country, mass incarceration began to boom, right? 
well beyond the 2.2 million, 2.3 million that we talk about today. And people begin to realize that in conservation, it's not working. You're poor, you're spending some $80 billion a year on incarcerating people. And within three years of them coming out, 70% of them are returning back to prison. So prison is, 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 is one of the only business, if not the only business, that thrives off of failure. Because if the Department of Corrections is designed to correct bad behavior and a person is serving 5, 10, 15 years and they're being released and they've returned back to that bad behavior, then the system actually failed in its efforts to correct their behavior, mm -hmm. right? I like to talk, I like to use uh, any example of any product or merchandise that you're selling. If you're selling, uh, uh, you know, uh, electronics and you have a, a warranty and you say these electronics have a warranty, they're going to work for 10 years straight and you don't have to change them. And within the first three years of you selling that product, 70% of the product that you put out has to be returned to you within the first 36 months of you selling it, your business is going to fail. Mm -hmm. But the prison industrial complex hasn't failed because it's doing exactly what it was designed to do. One of the things that happened as a result of the 1994 crime bill was the three strikes you're out. And it became... Um, exposed when a young it became exposed when a young man stole a slice of pizza in California and was given 25 to life for a slice of pizza you see because he fell under the three strikes you're outlaw so for me to understand it no matter what you're going through you could have stolen a slice of pizza you could have you know whatever it might be, the third strike puts you in, like, in prison. It makes you eligible for life. And what I like to think of it as is you're criminalizing poverty. A guy steals a slice of pizza because he's hungry. Mm -hmm. A guy steals food because he's hungry. So when you criminalize a guy for, 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 for being hungry and for stealing something to eat and you give him life in prison, clearly, clearly there's something wrong with that. Clearly this system that we have of corrections is not designed to correct bad behavior. Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually thrives off of bad behavior because what you've created as Michelle Alexander eloquently put it in her book, The New Jim Crow, what you've created was a permanent underclass. So currently, 60% uh, of formerly incarcerated people are still unemployed one year after being released. Mm -hmm. Right? So within three years, you, you, you know, 70% of them are often returned back to prison. So the system continues to fail and it continues to be this 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 re this door of, of of recycling human bodies, right? Yeah. You know, you're recycling human bodies, and what no one seems to realize is you're also destroying human potential. A lot right? of potential. Some yeah. people 
extraordinary potential. Some people say the graveyard is the richest place in the world. I'm saying that the prisons are just as wealthy because you have so much untapped potential, untapped talent behind these prison bars because you've stifled it. And not only have you stifled it, you're not, you, you, you're not providing the necessary resources or opportunities for those minds to thrive. If you're going to incarcerate someone for a crime for a season, then they should be given the tools so that they can become better and tap into their own gifts and cultivate their, their talents and gifts because each and every one of us have one. Mm -hmm. Each of us have a talent and a gift. Each of us are better than the worst mistake, mistakes we've ever made. So true. And so if we tap into those talents and those gifts, how much better will, we, will the workforce be in the United States when we start bringing guys out that can code, guys that can build houses, guys that have picked up really, you know, uh, trades that can be utilized, not absolute things. You got a guy sweeping the floor, working in the mess hall for 25 years. We got guys back there that, that are doing everything, man. Uh, brilliant minds. So why would we want those minds to just go to waste sitting behind bars? Why would we not provide the necessary tools that they need to thrive Is there, or to be better? Do you see programs being developed to help? The vast majority of programs that were developed to help were developed by incarcerated people. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's, it's really just that simple. You know, a group of guys come together and they say, we need to begin starting. Let's start a program called computer refurbishing so that we can start fixing and breaking computers down because this is the future. So let's start helping guys learn how to put a computer back together. And this was in the 90s when the Resurrection Study Group started that. And the prison took the program in Greenhaven Correctional Facility and made it their own program, created a job for someone and didn't give guys the necessary tools to thrive. It became just the item number and a program for one of their civilian. Nepotism is, is, is prevalent in the prison system. A cousin or uncle of some of the staff members or one of the depths to, to work there and get a paycheck. Meanwhile, the guys that are, that are there to, to learn, you know, they're not learning anything because you took it away from the guys who really wanted to pour into these guys. You took the program from them just so you can create a, a job opportunity for a relative. So those pro, even the programs that deal with violence, uh, the programs that deal with HIV and AIDS were started in Bedford Hills by the women. Um, it's now known as PACE, Prisoners, AIDS, Counseling, and Education. Mm -hmm. that, it's an acronym, P-A-C-E. Um, and these guys can break down the, every new medication that's been developed for HIV and AIDS. They can break down the viral load count. They can break down the virus and what it does to the body. HIV um, being a classification, you know what I mean? Um, and AIDS being a virus, right? And what it means to deal with... So, so I, I've been in the prisons where the nurses have to confront with, they have to consult with some of the prisoners who teach PACE because they're so well abreast to HIV AIDS and how it attacks the immune system that some of the nurses didn't know what medicine or what cocktails to put together to help guys that came to the prison system that was sick.
The team and the people at Engineered Sleep are offering you 15% off if you use promo code LIVE15 to get a new mattress. And I cannot tell you enough how much trust I have in the team at Engineered Sleep and the product they will provide to you if you have any questions about your current mattress. If you're getting bad sleep and you think it might be your mattress, it's time to upgrade your mattress. And the team at Engineered Sleep is here to do that for you. Use promo code LIVE15. You'll get 10% off your order. But most importantly, you're going to be working with an amazing company. You're going to have an amazing product. And you're going to start sleeping better at night and you'll start performing better on a daily basis so go to engineeredsleep.com use promo code live 15 get 15 percent off your order and start sleeping better and performing better on a daily basis is there is there any legislation or is there anything that like for me right like i don't know what i can do to help right like what can what can people do to help like is there legislation or is there different programs we can you know donate to like what is what is a way normal you know anybody can help one of the first things i think is important for people to know is that getting involved in local elections who's your da who's your assemblyman who's your district leader because they are they have to cater and to their uh, constituents and when you begin to tell them well we need to know what's going on in these jails what are they doing for those incarcerated so that when they come home, they come home better and not bitter. I mean, what do you want? 95% of the people incarcerated are coming home. What kind of person would you want coming home living next to you? That's the questions that I, yeah. that I like to ask people. I like to ask your listeners. What type of human being would you like to come home and live next door to you? Because 95% of them are coming home. Now, so would you want them to come home educated? with a skill, you know, reform, right? Someone that has transformed, their, that had the opportunity to transform the way that they think and live, right? Because if you address the way a person thinks, their behavior automatically changes, right? So you want to address their belief system and their values. But there are no programs inside these prisons that actually addresses human behavior. Mm -hmm. Right? And then gives us the tools so that we can thrive intellectually. And, and, and I get it. College might not be for everyone, but can we get a viable skill like coding, which is, which is so important? Sure. I know at one point, I know at one point Mark Zuckerberg's wife was going into a female prison in Oklahoma to teach coding because there were so many women incarcerated in Oklahoma. So we can get involved in our local politics. We can get involved in volunteering to go into a jail or a prison and say, well, I want to dedicate a certain amount of hours a year to teaching incarcerated people about culinary arts. Mm -hmm. Right? Some guys love to cook. They want to learn how to cook. I want to teach uh, horticulture. I want to teach guys what it means to come home and garden and grow and raise your own food. Mm -hmm. You see? So we can all volunteer and do something. And um, oftentimes, a lot of these prisons and jails are looking for a volunteer to come in and just give these guys maybe some spirituality, right? Because that spirituality is so important, having faith and being able to believe in something greater than yourself. Sure. For me, um, you know, I, I would, I, I've been in the church for years because 
I know that, you know, my, my strength, I felt, came from God, right? My strength came from God and family, and I realized how blessed and how fortunate I was. Mm-hmm. So I made it my business to, 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 to get into that church and sometimes speak, often, oftentimes speak um, to the congregation and let them know what I, where I believe God brought me from. Mm-hmm. As, I, as I was able to grow and mature and become a whole person, um, so many of our young people are lacking that moral compass by which uh, they need to govern their lives. So going in and dip, giving them some tools, addressing their beliefs, addressing their values, and then they are children of incarcerated parents. Since I've been released, I volunteer at an organization called Children of Promise, NYC. Um, the, the, the website is cpnyc.org, which caters to children of incarcerated parents in Brooklyn and the Bronx. And they have over 300 children at Children of Promise, NYC. Um, and when I went there, some of these young people asked questions that got to break your heart, right? They got to break your heart. And you, people, no one realizes the impact and the trauma incarceration has on children of incarcerated parents. I actually, um, my TED talk, that's what it was on, children of incarcerated parents. It's actually on YouTube. I don't know if you had the opportunity to view it. No, I haven't um, yet. Yeah, um, but for some, I don't know if you know, but the system had my name with a T at the end. Bruce Bryant, my name doesn't have the T. But if you get a chance, it's on YouTube. Um, it was titled Invisible Victims because for me, these children don't have a voice and they're often overlooked as collateral consequences of mass incarceration, but they're not collateral consequences. They're primary consequences Mm -hmm. because when a child loses a primary caregiver, that's not a collateral consequence. That's a primary consequence, right? Collateral means secondary. When you lose your mother or your father to incarceration, it's not a secondary loss to you. It's a primary loss. And no one wants to hear the, no one has, Consider the voices of these children and what it means to hear them say, when you took my parents away for what they've done or what they, or in some cases what they may not have done and you decided that they would, it would be good for them to be gone for 10, 20 years while I grow up and have my prom and graduate junior high school and have my first girlfriend or first boyfriend, right, without my father present. You don't realize the trauma that it has on our young people. Yeah, totally. You know, I, but but you know, mainstream society doesn't think about that. You know, we we an entire family is uh, impacted by crime and incarceration. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to really develop a holistic approach by which we hold people accountable for the poor decisions that they make, but we also consider those that we don't often see or believe to be victims, which are the families and the children of the person that we incarcerated. So we got, we got two victims involved. Mm-hmm. The victim who was, who was impacted by the crime and the child whose parent was incarcerated and taken away from. So we need a holistic approach that, invest, that addresses all the victims and, and, and allows to hear the voice, the voices of everyone, right? We need to circle not just restorative justice, but transformative justice that allows us to really take a look at how do we tap into what it is that causes a person 
to want to engage in criminality, right? Because prevention is always better than cure. Preventing a sickness is much better than trying to cure. Mm -hmm. So if we can prevent crime by addressing the crime generative factors, the social conditions in our communities that produce crime, um, then, you know, do see a, a complete shift. We have to have that paradigm shift in our approach to dealing with crime. Because the reality is this. Poverty is criminal. Mm -hmm. Poverty is violence. Poverty is violence. When a child wakes up or a mother wakes up and she's unable to provide for adequate for her children, she's unable to provide adequate housing, food, shelter, and clothing, the basic needs of every human being, right? With, and be treated with dignity. Um, that's, a, that's criminal in and of itself. Yeah. So we have to have a holistic approach. We have to have a paradigm shift in how we approach this. And we have to realize that when we say it's, it's all of us or none of us, how far are we willing to take that? Yeah. You know, are we willing to take some time out of our day and say, I want to go into a prison and visit some people and see what it's like. A very, a very close friend of mine that spent over two decades with me named John Adrian Velasquez. He has a program with, uh, a professor from Georgetown named Mark Howard. Mark Howard has the Frederick Douglass Project where he brings people like you and I and everyday citizens into the prison system for a tour. He brings them into Sing Sing for a tour and allows them to sit in a room with 20, 25 incarcerated people so that they can see that these are just not prisoners. These are human beings. You can see the humanity of every person in there and sit and have real conversations with them in a large group and then break off into small groups and have in-depth dialogue with, you know, the five or six guys that are in your group. Yeah. Make right? some, make some, you realize they're people. You make sure that you see their potential. You That's see all right. that. Yes. That's right. You see it all. Um, and then in those dialogues, a person can decide, well, what, what can I give? What can I do to impact, to continue to impact your life? You know, what can I do? Right? Can, I, can I get two professors from the college near my house to come in and teach a course on career and life planning? Right? Can I come in and get someone to teach a course on time management? Right? Because if you got 10 years or 20 years, how Eddie Ellis taught us to break it down was... Well, what do you do in your first two years? What are your goals? What do you want to do? Do you want to graduate from high school? Do you want to get a trade? Do you want to get involved in an anti-violence program? Do that your first year. And then you make a five-year plan. If you have 20 years, 15 years, what you want to do, how you want to construct your prison life, because you still have a life and you can still thrive, right? How do you want to construct your life so that you can become better a better human being, right? Yeah. How do we tap in there? How do we teach values and beliefs? Because essentially, that's where all of our poor decisions come from. Yeah. Our self-beliefs, the beliefs about ourselves and the things that we value. What, so um, we can all do something. Yeah, sure, man. What um, what does your day-to-day -day look like now? You know, what, uh, what oh, projects man. do you... I know, I mean, I feel like you work on so many things, it's hard to kind of like narrow it down to a few, 
But kind of talk me through what you're doing now on a day-to-day. On a day-to-day basis, I go in the office, man, Sam, and uh, sometimes I wonder how people work from home because working from home would never work for me. I'm so excited to get out the house and be around the young students that I mentor and that I work with at the uh, Perlmutter Center for Legal Justice. As a criminal legal reform advocate and student mentor, I have about 12 students that I work with every day. And we're going over several cases of people that are wrongfully convicted. Some are rightfully convicted, but we believe serving too much time and we try to get them time cuts or some guys deserve executive clemency. So we help put together a clemency package that goes before the governor and the clemency bureau. So, I mean, we, we you know, we're receiving stacks of mail every day, uh, working to try to get some brothers out of prison. I'm also working with family and friends of the of wrongfully convicted, mm-hmm. which is in Brooklyn. I remember uh, it's founded, about that. It's founded, yes, it's founded by Derek Hamilton. I'm on the board of family and friends for the wrongfully convicted. And, uh, you know, what we're looking at now is, um, you know, continuing to support those families, those, 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 those mothers and those sons and those daughters who have loved ones incarcerated and um, can't make it by day to day. So we try to surround them with support um, as well as help their loved one get out and deal with the legalities of that and encourage people that are formerly incarcerated to vote, get involved in local politics because yeah. there are a couple of bills. There are a couple of bills that are push, being pushed, right? Um, the RAP, an organization called RAP, R-A-P-P, Releasing Aging People in Prison, which is a bill that says 55 and up, if you're 55 or older and you've served 15 years or more or half of your sentence, then you should be considered for parole because stats show two things. There are two things we know that are factual. One is people age out of crime. Two is Mm -hmm. people educate out of crime. So the average person 55 years or older is not going back to prison. They're not coming home to commit a crime. So we believe releasing aging people in prison, that bill should be strongly considered. Um, And we should begin looking at how we can get our elders released from prison. And and then and it's the and the elder parole it's called the elder parole bill as well and the second chance act, uh, which we're saying guys deserve a second chance after they've served half of their sentence, ten years. If you got twenty five years and you've served up more than ten years, based on what you've done while you're incarcerated, have you educated yourself? Have you taken every opportunity to grow? If so, we need to relook at what you've done because the reality is this. The nature of the crime will never change, but oftentimes people do mm-hmm. what people do. So the guy who spends 10 years in prison, who goes to jail at 20 and comes out and, and, and is 30 now, he doesn't think the same, he doesn't act the same, he doesn't live the same as he did when he was 20. It's completely so oftentimes we need a completely different person. We need to revisit these sentences, these harsh sentences um, that these judges have handed out to countless young men and women, and you know, across the country, not just in New York State. Yeah. We need to begin to revisit these sentences um, and see how we can say that 
does it make sense to continue to keep this particular person in prison? Or are we just warehousing them? Because in some cases, they're warehousing them. Yeah, and you can use them for labor too, and right? You, you can use them for, for the labor force and, and you can save money by not having to fend for their medical bills while incarcerated. Because mm -hmm. as you age sitting behind bars, you develop medical issues. And those medical issues cost the state. Yep. So why would you want to keep a person in there 60, 70 years old? Um, when we know at that age, the statistics and the data show that the likelihood of them reoffending is zero to none mm -hmm. because you either do you either do two things. You either educate out of crime or you age out of crime. Yep. Right? We know that through factual data that people age out of crime. Wow. The guy fifty five years old is not coming home to do the things he did when he was 25. Yep, totally. So we need to begin revisiting some of those draconian sentences that a lot of our people have been uh, subjected to over the years. Are you, um, you still Particularly under, yes, yes, yes. What's your practice look like? Yeah. It looks good, man. Lately, what I've also been doing is um, I'm going to the park and just sitting down, running, thinking, um, and just spending time enjoying the serenity of life, mm -hmm. nature, right? And being able to breathe in the plants and the grass and the green as opposed to the concrete jungle every day, right? Just taking in some nature and just trying to absorb it and take it into your lungs and breathe and, um, and listen to your heartbeat and listen to nature. And it gives you a sense of peace, mm -hmm. peace that you just can't find outside, internal peace. Is there, um, is there anything like listeners or people can do to help you out in what you're trying to accomplish? Well, there are a couple of things, man. One is get involved. Get involved on some level um, with voting. You're prosecuting. A lot of people don't go out and vote for who is their D, who's the district attorney in their county. Um, that's important. Uh, get out and vote. Uh, start becoming involved in some of these uh, uh, these jails, these juvenile jails. If we can get these young people that are in juveniles, these young girls that are in juvenile group homes and jails before they progress up into the big house, right? It's important to get them when they're young. Um, and also, um, just try to Pick somebody up as you climb, right? We All lift right. as we climb. We lift as we climb. All right, last last little tidbit, last little question. When you were incarcerated for, you know, say 30 years, was there a message of hope or what was the message that you kind of kept in your brain to kind of continue to push forward that if somebody was listening now, maybe they could use in their life? I can't be defined by my circumstances. Don't be defined by the conditions you find yourself in today because you can make a conscious decision to do something different tomorrow and your situation can change overnight. There has to be a paradigm shift in the way that we believe and process information around us, right? Um, where you are doesn't define who you are or what you can become. I love it. And who you can become. Because there's greatness in all of us, mm -hmm. right? We just have to be able to tap into it 
and, and, and be able to cultivate it and nurture it. Um, and we got, we got to be able to see it. And more than anything, each day, when you look in that mirror, tell that person you see in there that you love them. Tell them that they're worthwhile and tell that person you love them. Because self-love is where it all starts. You know? It's where it all starts, brother. Bro, you're a, you're a special guy, man. I'm telling you. like, Thank you, man. Tell your mama she better be proud. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I love her dearly, too, you know? <laughs> you... um. You give off this Denzel Washington vibe to me, by the way. <laughs> you Thank make you, me man. feel inspired. Yes. Well, I appreciate that, man. And you know, one of the things, when I set out to, to share with, with you or with anyone else, um, my intentions were just to share my story. If, if in fact, someone is inspired and, uh, and is touched by, um, by my story, then that is just, you know, that's icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. That's so much of an added blessing because we want to lift each other up because we can all do more if we want to be more, right? Yeah. You know, if you want more, you got to be more and you can do just a little bit more, right? It's that extra that makes the ordinary extraordinary. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we can all do just a little extra, man. And, and always appreciate and always bring somebody with you, man, and appreciate your fellow man, your fellow woman, man, because gratitude can take us so far in life. Very true. You know, it's why I always express my oceans of gratitude, and I want to extend it to you, uh, Brother Sam, because for having me and, um, on your show and giving me the opportunity to share. Uh, you know, it hasn't been easy after 29 years, but I try to put one foot in front of the other each morning and say my prayer and thank God for another day mm -hmm. and know that if I can reach someone or put a smile on someone's face and inspire someone each and every day to become better, then my life is worth living each day, man. Yeah. And man, I, uh, I'm so thankful and grateful for you to come on. And I was thinking about this earlier today, like how am I going to like, you know, it's weird to think cause I wish I never knew your story. Cause that means you yes. never went to jail, but you know, that things happen and obviously you can't change what happened. So I'm thankful that I heard your story and, uh, you know, I believe in some way, you know, hopefully it helps make bigger change for, for yeah. what we're trying to accomplish. And I'm going to tell you something, man. Um, sometimes speaking about it and revisiting it, it brings me to tears. It really, really does. Um, because, you know, when you look at your loved ones, you look at your mother who's 80 now, you see how how long you've been gone away from her, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it's heartbreaking in, 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 in one way. But you say, you know, I got today and I got to live for this moment today. Mm -hmm. And I got her here today and I just thank God for that, man. I'm just appreciate her for today you know well <clears throat> bruce i'm gonna have uh all the links everything for people to resources to find to help you out everything in the show notes so i can't thank you enough man i mean it's it's incredible what you're doing here 
I feel like the damn smartest person I've ever talked to. Like it's it's uh it's incredible you, having you on. Thank you so much, man. I'm hoping, man, that we're gonna sit down face to face and have lunch and dinner one day That's soon. Right. You know, I'm gonna be in New York in uh, in great. October. So, oh, so let's set it up. Let's get let's get together, man. Yeah, we will. I'll I'll make sure that happens. Um, well, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Um, hope you get some glasses or contacts. I know you you're trying to get that figured out too. So, um, yes, man. Just thank you so much again. Thank you so much, Sam. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, click subscribe on your listening platform for upcoming conversations.